Uh, as Silas mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm Megan Cowell. I'm the Director of um, Spiritual Formation at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, but I am so excited, again, to be with you all both in person and to those of you online because it's a chance to see familiar faces and new faces and to, to be together as a church, uh, one church across the city. And so for those of you that might be joining for the very first time, we as six churches across the city have just finished up a sermon series called, um, a, a sermon series focused on racial justice and reconciliation. And now we're entering into the second of three weeks studying Sabbath. And there's a through line in knowing that in order to experience the movement of the Holy Spirit amidst racism in our lives, uh, and to be aware of this movement and the systems and the structures and the relationships that we are a part of, um, that that we need a practice of attunement to God. And so today we're going to examine the question of, uh, of why Sabbath, like the big question of why. And in short, a purpose of Sabbath is a practice, um, it's, it's a, the purpose of Sabbath practice is that it provides a spacious place from which we can live into this kingdom of God, whatever life circumstances. This, like any practice, requires a discipline or a consistency, but in it's, it's in a way that gives a capacity to live out God's command to love God, love others. And it's not just about this capacity, though. I want to pause there for a second. It's a gift in itself that draws us near to the delight and the living into our calling as image bearers, as we heard Amy mention earlier. And so we'll explore this, we'll, we'll explore this through Jesus' example in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, which we just heard Silas read. But I also want to start by reading a psalm, uh, a Sabbath psalm. This is Psalm 18, just verse 19. And this Sabbath psalm is something that has been read by people as part of a Sabbath practice for for time, time immortal, if we think about it that way. Um, this, this psalm, I think, captures God's heart for the Sabbath, and it reads simply, He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I'll say that again. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So Sabbath has been a gift for and with mankind since the very beginning of time. And it's found its fulfillment in Jesus. And I think the Bible Project, a great tool for those of you that haven't heard of it before, uh, has a really good way of describing this. Uh, It gives us the history and the context of Sabbath. And I like it so much uh, that I'm kind of sharing it with everybody, shared it with the kids at West last week, and I would like to share it with you all today. And so we're going to take a minute to watch uh, as we kind of set up for those of you that might have missed last week to hear what the Sabbath is all about. So we'll go ahead and watch that now. The number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Yeah, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is connected to the idea of fullness or completeness. And that's something we all long for, but don't often experience. Instead, we find ourselves working endlessly, fighting back chaos with no real rest. Yes. Now keep all that in mind as we turn to Genesis 1 in the Bible. It begins with darkness and disorder, but then God speaks to bring about light and order so that life can flourish. And this happens over the course of six days. Each day is marked with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. But on the seventh day, something special happens. God stops and rests. Right. Creation is brought to its completion on the seventh day. And that phrase, there was evening and there was morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. It's like a day with no end. 
On the seventh day, God's presence fills his creation. The land provides for all of God's creatures, including humans, who are appointed to rule the world with God forever. Kings and queens of the seventh day rest. I can get into that. But the humans are deceived by a dark power, and they forfeit that rest. They're exiled into the wilderness, where they have to work as slaves to the land. Until they die and return to the dust from which they came. But God wants to restore humanity back to that seventh day rest. So he chooses to give the family of Israel that experience of ultimate rest so they can share it with others. But how? They're in Egypt, slaves to an oppressive empire who's grinding them into the dust. So God confronts Egypt and he liberates the Israelites, taking them through the darkness and chaos on the way to the promised land. Now, while they're on their way, they find themselves in the wilderness. It's easy to get lost. Life is a struggle. They're not in the land of rest yet. But while they're on the way, God invites them in the wilderness to start living as if they're in the promised land. But how do you practice the future rest in the wilderness? Well, God tells them that every seventh day they are to stop their work, or in Hebrew, to Shabbat, so that they can rest and enjoy God's good world. So take a whole day to live as if the ultimate rest has already come. Yeah, this is the Sabbath, celebrated every week on the seventh day. But there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practiced every year, each one anticipating that seventh day rest. That is a lot of sevens. And there's even more. Every seven years, the Israelites were to liberate slaves, forgive debts, and let the land rest for a whole year. And then every seven times seven years was the ultimate seventh day rest called the year of Jubilee. If anyone had lost their land or gone into debt, all was forgiven, everything restored. Wow, so the Sabbath, these feasts, the year of Jubilee, it's all pointing towards the hope of future rest. Right. Now, when the Israelites went into the land, they forgot their God, and so they forfeited their chance for rest in the promised land. They're exiled and enslaved again by an oppressive nation, led back into a world of chaos and disorder. But Israel's prophets said that their exile would end one day and that the ultimate jubilee of freedom and rest would come, but generations go by and they're still waiting. It's at this dark point in the story that Jesus appears and he launches his public mission on a Sabbath day. Yeah, he read aloud from the scroll of Isaiah saying that it was time for all captives and slaves to be released because this was the year of the Lord's favor. What did he mean, this is the year of the Lord's favor? He was talking about the ultimate jubilee. Also, Jesus is claiming that seventh day rest would come through him. Right. He said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath and he confronted disorder and darkness and all of its forms, liberating people from sickness, sin, even from death itself. Yet Jesus was killed. So even his work was undone. Well, it seemed that way. But notice, Jesus timed his death to take place at the end of the week. His body rested in a tomb during the Sabbath and on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. Oh, wait, the eighth day? You mean the first day of a new week? Exactly. Jesus' resurrection was like the first day of a new creation, where God's light and life broke into the darkness. So because of the resurrection, we have hope in God's promise of future rest. But we're not there yet. It's like we're still in the wilderness, where we experience struggle and pain. But as we journey towards that ultimate seventh day, Jesus invites us to experience a taste of real rest now by following him, or in his words, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's Jesus that gives us the rest. It's not the practices, it's not the days of the week, but it's, it's Jesus himself bringing that fulfillment. So we pray with me before we go any further in our time today. Uh, Jesus, would you help our time this morning to point towards you and um, towards your gift of being with you in a way that Sabbath practice can provide? Can you strip away any ways that the enemy would want to weave in thoughts of uh, legalism, lies of legalism, or this sense of, of a laziness if we set, enter into rest? Would you again protect our minds uh, and allow our bodies to, probe, to be brought into this conversation? Allow all of ourselves to be brought into participating in your kingdom. Would you guide us, Holy Spirit, and remove any ways that, as communicator, I might muddle this for folks as we talk about Sabbath. Um, And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, spiritual formation at West Seattle looks a little bit different um, in that it encompasses all ages. So that means that I get to moonlight a little bit in the world of kids. Uh, And let me tell you, some of the best sermons ever preached will come from the mouths of children. Um, and so whether you have any experience with kids or not, I would encourage you to connect with Amy Erickson, who you saw up here just a moment ago, um, and to think about uh, what it would look like to volunteer and to, to spend time with these kids. And I'm not saying this just as a plug to help support your all, y'all's children ministry. I'm saying this because those children, if, if you spend time with them enough, they'll rock your world. They'll, they'll help you see God in a different way and to be with God in a way that is so different um, that, than, than what we as adults, I think, can experience. And so I mention this because in preparing for these converse, for conversation points for our parents at West uh, and, and how they can talk about Sabbath with their children, we landed on this big idea that to summarize Sabbath, uh, a way to summarize Sabbath is to say that we can spend time with God. As simple as that. Sabbath practice means we can spend time with God. And Sabbath, which we studied last week, was the culmination, the apex, this final part of God's creation process, which gives us a glimpse into the kingdom and this rhythmic way of being that God has intended and still intends today. Um, But we're not meant to go at the pace that our modern life dictates. We're called to live a life that's different from what's around us. And the more that I've studied this practice, the more radical and otherworldly it seems. To take an entire 24 hours and be completely unproductive with it. Unproductive because you're spending time with God, but what does spending time with God even mean? And does anybody else have a schedule that makes this very idea a little bit laughable? You're like, really? A whole 24 hours? So up until the 1960s, Sabbath was built into the framework, into the architecture of our American lives. Stores were shut down, sports didn't happen. On Sundays, there was no 6.30 a.m. Seahawks game in Germany. Um, People were at home. The tiny little devices in our hands didn't even exist. But since then, our world has become more and more chaotic, more and more in ways, choose your own adventure, but make sure you're choosing all of these different things. And for many, it means that if you don't match the pace of the world, you're going to fall behind. Your kids aren't going to get that scholarship if they're not in practice every, every day of the week, right? So now we're introduced to a choice, a choice to resist what the world is telling us we have to do and to turn back to what we were called to do. And there's this threshold across here where the theologian Walter Brueggemann, I'm going to paraphrase really widely here, um, but he he says that he's named Sabbath as a form of resistance. It's a resistance to that empire that attempts to control us, and to control us and the world around us. 
And I'll save the details for Sabbath as resistance for another day, because for some, it is a life or death choice with systemic oppression that is preventing any form of rest. And it's something that, that we who have the choice in this room, um, it's, it's a choice that we should fight for on their behalf. So we'll, we'll say that again for another day. But, but we really only fight for that which we love. So if we don't love Sabbath, how would we fight for it for anybody else to experience? So I want us to consider as we think about engaging with Sabbath, why would we spend this amount of time with Jesus? Like, why would we do this? And, and how? How practical? I'm a practical person. How would we actually do a practice like this? So I had to sit down and really think about how this would look differently in my own life. Talk about if you're going to preach about something, you got to be ready to, like, examine it in your own heart. Um, and so for me, over the last couple of years, couple of months, whatever you want to phrase it down to, down to the last 24 hours, this, this has taken a rearranging of my entire schedule. So this means saying no to opportunities. This means that, um, that in order to advance in life or to be able to do certain things that I might be interested in doing, it means saying no to certain things. And it means doing so so that I could commit to a day, a full 24 hours. And for me, this, it was really important to me to have a full 24 hours with my husband. And we both have these really off schedules. So we both don't have a traditional weekend. So we had to find a day that would naturally overlap, uh, or, in, or in this case, unnaturally overlap. So again, I had to, to move my actual schedule, the natural force of it, and put it into something else. And then the next step is to protect that time, which for me is the hardest part. And I hear Addie encourage me to say that. She's like, yeah, that is hard. Protect that time. And the, for me, this looks like scheduling it so that, that nothing else lands on that time, so that it's just a spacious open block on my calendar. But I know how I operate, and I know that, even, that I have to actually block that off as unavailable to the rest of the world. So a little tip, little trick, block it off. Say, this is, this is time. You can call it Sabbath. You can call it family time. You can put it whatever it is, but, but block that time off and protect it. And some weeks, this moves to another day of the week. Other weeks, I slip and I schedule something, like, something right smack in the middle of it because I want to appease five other schedules that I'm inconvenience, inconveniencing. And some weeks, my mind is so caught up in the deadlines and the, the pressures and the projects. And even if I'm physically off, my mind is... Is, is still spinning, and I know that I've kind of failed outright because the entire purpose, I miss that entire purpose in God and the details around me. So step one, commit and protect the time. But once you get a taste of it, it starts to be something that becomes worth fighting for. And ultimately, you realize that you want to fight for it so that others can have it too. And so what does curating that taste look like? How can spending time with God be that great? If we return to the text from Mark again for a moment, we see that in this story, it's taking place on a Sabbath already. Jesus is healing and he's meeting with people, but he goes off to this quiet place to be with God. I think there's something in that. I think uh, I read this and it's like it's meant to be this battery recharge moment. I think plug in, get back out there. It's the ancient Tesla supercharging moment. But, but Jesus, he, he got up to do this on his own. And I'd like to consider it in this moment, that he wants to be with God, and he wants to go to the people also. This is why I've come, he says in this. So Jesus is living out of Sabbath rest, out of time with God, and, and so can we. Jesus told us that this greatest commandment, the greatest commandment for us, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first commandment, and the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
So Jesus is telling us again how to act. But you can't, something, you can't love something that you do not know, and it's incredibly difficult to love something with all of your being if there's no regular time spent or set aside with that something. And so somehow, uh, one of the Ten Commandments that we've been given, that was upheld for culture since they were given to our forefathers, they see, it seems to have slipped out of our regular rhythms just in the last couple of generations. So this, we've given it one of the Ten Commandments, and it's baked into this commandment that God gave us in summary of the greatest commandments, but we've somehow slipped out of that practice. But we see, when we saw in this video, that there's grace upon grace for picking back up and starting over again, repeatedly. We see that we're not the first group of people that God has rescued and kind of put back on track, put back into practice, put back into the story. And so Jesus told us that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which is one reason that we continue to follow these Ten Commandments, this one included. And when it comes to Sabbath, we have two accounts of it being written into the Ten Commandments. And anytime something's repeated in the Bible, we, we want to pay attention to that. And so I want to look just at how they differ just slightly between those two accounts, because I think it gets at our question of how. The first account is in Exodus, where in Hebrew, it describes as a time being set apart and kept holy. And then in Deuteronomy, the phrasing is slightly different, and it says to remember and keep it holy. So we go from just set apart to remember to keep it holy. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that in this, it's a moment to remember, and we're thinking, remember, remember what? For the Israelites, it was being brought out of Egypt. It was that reminder of being set free from Pharaoh, from empire. And we use language like the world now and of the things that keep us in bondage. And so we can think again about what is it, what are we remembering? And there may be a temptation to think we're not in bondage. I'm not tied to anything or constrained. We live in America. And if, you're, if we're affluent, if we're educated, employed, able-bodied, dare I say white, it may feel like there isn't anything really holding us back. But how is your anxiety level? How is the secret addiction that nobody else knows about that you indulge in? How about that tiny device that's either in your hand right now or somewhere very easily accessible to you? What would it look like to leave that behind for an entire day? Are we truly free right now in this moment? So Sabbath, a weekly day of rest that says you are, that you exist, that this kingdom is both now and later. It's an opportunity to experience a freedom from all that we build up in our own empires. John Mark Comer, a pastor out of Portland, uh, has a podcast on Sabbath, and I've been listening to that recently. And he kept repeatedly saying that one of the things that really drew him to this idea of Sabbath is that you're never more than six days away from rest. Rest from all the things. You're never six days away from that relief from these tiny empires that we've built. So one of my markers for, practice, for this practice of Sabbath is a time of remembering. And I've designed this around food because I think that feasting or eating with intention, napkins on the table, cups, forks, the table is set. It leads us to remembering how we've experienced God. Or for, in my case, it helps me to remember how I've experienced God when I kind of set the table to think about it. And I chose this phrase, how I experienced God, because when I first thought about talking about this, I wanted to say how I saw God, but that didn't really encapsulate everything that I'm trying to capture here. And so it could be said, how I heard God, how I tasted God, how I smelled God, how I was touched by God. 
And so what I challenge you today or this week is to think and consider what God's presence through all of your senses might feel like. What might, how might you experience God? And so if you're thinking about, did I even experience God throughout the day? Just take a moment and think about your senses and think through it. Bring your body into it, not just your mind. This is not just about our minds and how we experience God. And so now I want to back up for just a moment because I think that the typical response from people when we think about Sabbath, I think can go uh, one of two ways. The first one is that it's either, oh, that would be so great. I am so tired. I would love to have some rest, but it's really just not feasible right now. Season of life, kids, job, all of those things. It's just not feasible. And then I think the other one that I've heard is it's like, ew, I don't want to stare at the Bible all day and do nothing. Like, I don't know if anyone has ever felt that way. They're like, Sabbath, yes, now I will sit down and be holy in my chair and read my Bible. But that's not super appealing, is it? And I think in my house, between my husband and I, we'd be divided between those two extremes. And I think even just that, that division in itself has kept us from trying to practice this together in the past. And so in, in part of this, again, um, this comes from an incomplete picture of, of why Sabbath. Like, why is this practice still relevant to us today? And so I want to I share that it's a practice which enables us to live into the calling of who we are. To love God, to love others. It's both a discipline that builds capacity and a gift in itself. It's both rest and delight and a moment to build awareness to God all around us. And if we are able to build a capacity to be more attuned to God's kingdom in our own lives and in our individual empires, it enables us to live differently, to be different, to live counterculturally to the demands of what the world is trying to say that this is how we're supposed to be. But we live in a broken world. So not only is practicing Sabbath difficult, it can feel at times unattainable to enter into it unless all the stars align, unless everything lines up perfectly to make it possible. And when we talk about Sabbath, regardless of the circumstances, it's really easy to assume that it's just for the select few who are able to take time off, who have a flexible job, who are in a good mental headspace. Uh, it might be only for those that aren't operating just out of beyond, somewhere beyond survival. But if you were to ask your neighbor sitting next to you right now how often it feels like they're living in an abundance of time and spaciousness, and how often it feels like you're just barely getting through, I'd be willing to bet uh, on the tales of a pandemic, on the tales of all sorts of things that are happening in our world right now, that the latter is more true. That that abundance and space feels really far away. And so, what, also, what about those seasons where things are just hitting you from left, right, sideways, uh, and you're, like, barely hanging on? I think in those moments, talking about Sabbath can feel almost like salt to the wound. And what about those moments when your entire world is rocked? There's a cancer diagnosis, the death of a, left, of a loved one that's come out of nowhere. Or, as it was experienced this week, you get that unimaginable call that your, school's, uh, your child's school is on lockdown because of an active shooter. This is a fear that has become commonplace across our country. But it's not, it's not new. And this isn't a moment to talk about gun control or things like that, but it is a moment to, to recognize that this is a, a new aspect, or, or this is an aspect of our daily life in our culture, in this fast-paced world that we live in. There's also that possibility. And so I wanted to share with you all that um, when I was a senior in high school, one of my classmates was shot and killed in our hallways. And so... I've been one of those students where it was not a drill, and my body remembers every time I hear that it's happened again. 
I debated sharing this because even so many years later, it, can feel, it feels really raw. And I can only imagine how raw it is for so many of you here in this room right now. Whether you have children in the feeder elementary schools or the middle schools, or if you're a student at Inger High School, I'm so sorry that you have experienced this. This type of unthinkable act never has a good reason. Not for the lives that were taken or for the innocence and the safety that is robbed of everybody that's involved in it. So my little sister had a class in the hallway where the shooting happened. And as students streamed into the lunchroom, we have a ramp that they come running down. They were shouting about where and what had happened. And my first instinct was to get to my little sister as fast as I could. So it's not very rational. But between fight, flight, or freeze, I may be small, but I will always default to fight. So just so you know, don't surprise me in the hallway. Um, but, but in this moment of, of fight, like respond, it, it, my body's just acting. And my high school boyfriend at the time, he saw this in me, and I remember him grabbing me by the shoulders and, saying, and telling me to stop. And saying, he said in that moment, like, I'll go get her, but you have a job to do. So in that moment, in this season of time, I was our student body president. And I didn't know what was going to happen. None of us in this room, as adults are running and we're just a mob of kids, we didn't know what was going to happen next, but we knew that we needed to get students to safety. And so I took what I knew to be my calling of caring for people, which I think from very, very little until now, I know that, that that's me. I, I took that and, and I put it to work. I was shuffling people into the, into the gym. That was like, take your, take your bodily instinct and, and respond to it. And my sister and my boyfriend rejoined us in just a few minutes, um, and the shooter had walked out the back door to be arrested later. But, but this was not before wrecking the entire lives of so many in a community. It took days and weeks to figure out how to even begin operating again how to get out of that instinctual reaction in our bodies. As we're mourning the death of our classmate, as we're supporting his close family and his friends, we've got report, I've had reporters calling. There were conversations around metal detectors and armed cops circling. And I had administrators tell me that people would be looking to me as an example and that I was to lead how the students were to respond. There were so many times that I wished that they had never said that to me. And I don't remember my pastor talking to me uh, or asking me anything about it. Whether he did or didn't, I'm not sure, but that's not a memory that has stayed with me. And so if, if you're experiencing trauma or pain from this last week, I know that Silas would want to talk to you. I know that Amy would want to talk to you, that your deacons and your Stephen ministers, that they care deeply about what has been experienced and, and what you're carrying. And I know that the school wants to know that you as a community are here as well. So I'll just say that one more time. I know that the schools want to know that you as a church and our community are, that care also about what is happening. But I, I want to pause because I think that before there's action, there's another step to be made. And I think back to even just that instinctual moment that you find yourself in, that like you want to move to action, like your body wants to jump into something, but, but is there another step to be made? And I think that step is toward Christ, who has said that I have come that you might have rest. It's a spacious place because God himself delights in us and cares about us. The author of um, This Year Flesh and the founder of Black Liturgies, um, Cole Arthur Riley, 
she writes an amazing book, and I would encourage anyone to go read This Year Flesh if you're looking for ways to, to wonder and to experience God in, in everyday lives. But she writes about fear in particular in one of her chapters. And she says this. She says, I find it beautiful that in the face of terror, God does not bid us towards courage as we might perceive it. Instead, he draws us towards fear's essential sister, rest. A sister who is not meant to replace fear, but to exit together in tension and harmony with it. God hears us. God hears the children in the hallway when the gunshots, gunshots are reverberating. And God is not just our rabbi, our teacher, our, our productivity maker, our motivator. Like God heals and nurtures us. God is our father, God is our mother, our creator who cares about these high and low points in our lives. And imagine what a Sabbath practice might have looked at like in a moment of terror when you know that in a short period of time awaits rest. And that not just rest, but it, what awaits you is this presence of someone who doesn't have all of the answers maybe, or maybe not isn't going to give you all of the answers in that moment. But there is a person, there is God there to hold the doubt and the questions and the rage. To take that terror, terror and allow us to not continue to live into that, but to experience a mysterious peace that surpasses understanding. Riley goes on to write, I believe fear has the potential to draw out awe in us to lead us deeper into patterns of protection and trust, to mold us into people engaged in the unknown, capable of making mystery of it instead of terror. And Sabbath rest includes both delight and lament. It's a, it's a raw space, a time for presence with God. And so as I prepare to close, I want us to consider one last aspect of why this Sabbath practice. And why call it a practice? Because I think the, the beauty of the word practice is that it's not about mastery. And it's meant to hold a level of creativity and of, of nuance. Sabbath practice can be a container to hold other practices. But it feels as though there should be, if there should be one requirement, it should be awe. Awe at who God is. Awe at what God has created and what we as participants, co-creators with God, have the ability to be a part of. And to marvel or to be in awe of something takes awareness more than just that awareness of our cell phones constantly somewhere near us, right? And so we are being formed constantly by the world, whether we are aware of it or not, constantly being formed by the world. And so if we choose to engage in formation, engage in our own growing after, following after Christ, then this practice of Sabbath, a day apart, gives us that taste of heaven and of a kingdom that does exist even now amidst the pain and the suffering of the world. And one way to do this is through that consistency of rhythm, ritual, creating spaces to just show up. And there's so many choices vying for our attention, our time, our resources, ourselves. So set a marker to aim for. What's your marker? I'm a certified yoga instructor uh, as well, and something that I learned in my 200-hour program uh, was that a true yogi would never call themselves a yogi. Um, that's because they're always aware of this process of learning and practicing, that you never really quite attain it. And, and, what, and to attain it isn't quite what you think. And I find Sabbath to be somewhat similar. It's a practice that some days we wake up and we ease into, or we jump into and we're excited for. And there are others where you're not, you are not sure, or you just can't quite even touch your toes. You know, or in this case, approach God. But, but the beauty of that is that showing up is half the battle. 
For me, part of my Sabbath practice looks as simple as getting outside. I want to be in awe of what God's made. The change of the colors right now in the trees, whether it's the the bright blue greens of summer that you can see if you just get one of those really amazing clear uh, Seattle days, or maybe it's being pelted in the face with rain or mud in these weird off seasons in between time. For a friend I know, it's just playing music, just strumming. For another, it's playing with their nephews and watching them laugh. It's from that place of awe that is set apart that we can imagine and begin to engage in these other practices during, the, during this practice, this bucket of time that's set aside. What was that movie where it's like layers upon layers, and I think it was Inception, where it's like you've got this practice, and inside of this practice is the practice. I think also of the little dolls that you can pull. Again, it's, it's, it's about engaging in something, attempting something, setting a marker, and coming back to it over and over again. And if you think about it, you have an entire 24 hours for meditation, for solitude, scripture reading, service. But for me, I know it, it can, I can only do so if it's with a posture that isn't about accomplishing something. It isn't about checking the list off. So, for example, like go for a bike ride, but for that experience of flying, not training or to cook a meal for the joy of trying a new flavor or tasting something new, not for fueling, or a yoga class for experiencing the gratitude that my body in this moment can move, not wishing that it could do something or be something or, or even be something that it never could or that it could before. Or for this one, this is one of my favorite Sabbath practices. It's vacuuming to watch the dust bunnies disappear. It's not so that my parents are, I'm not afraid that my parents are going to judge me for having a messy house. But have you ever watched those dust bunnies? I promise, one of the best Sabbath practices you can engage in. So all of these mundane things at some point were probably not even allowed in a Sabbath practice. But again, it has more to do with the intention than it does the act itself. The posture in which you're approaching God. And so can you experience God in these seemingly separated pieces of a day? Poet Mary Oliver says that attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. So what does it look like to be paying such attention to God that like Jesus, we get up in the middle of the night while it's still dark to experience that spacious place? So I want to leave you again with that thought and that question of what does it look like to experience God in a way that brings us to, to, to pay so much attention that we want to seek after that and experience it. So I'll invite uh, Andrew and the band back up as we get ready to prepare. Um, and I just, again, want to give you guys an opportunity to think about that. Like, what, what does it look like in your life to set a time aside to begin thinking about and paying attention to God and everything around you?